Welcome to a discussion of Professor Engin Eisen's inaugural lecture, initially delivered on the 7th of February 2012 at the Open University Milton Keynes. My name is Jack Harrington. I'm the Publications and Publicity Manager of the Ocumeni Project, of which Engin is the Principal Investigator. I'm joined today by Anne McNevin and Kim Rigel, who will be discussing the inaugural lecture with Engin. Thanks, Jack. Um, I, well, to start with, thanks, Engin, for uh, a wonderful, thought-provoking, uh, rich lecture that certainly gave me a lot to think about, um, about the future possibilities for citizenship. Um, I have a couple of questions. One um, very general, uh, look, th thinking about the limits of the grammar of citizenship, uh, and then a, I guess a more specific set of questions around this, the example you used of MSF. Um, so maybe if I'll start with the general one and, uh, and we'll go from there. Um, I'd, I wanted to think about some of the ideas that you were proposing um, in relation actually to the keynote lecture that Judith Butler gave as part of the conference. Um, and she raised some really fundamental questions about citizenship that I think um, are really important for all of us who are trying to think about um, act, the notion of citizenship to theorise political acts. So she asked whether it was possible to think self-determination in a way that doesn't presuppose statehood as its logical aspiration and how to support self-determination for others in a way that doesn't determine the terms of that self-determination. And she asked about the role of a grammar of citizenship in that task. Can we use a grammar of citizenship to think outside the kinds of institutions and um, governance apparatuses that it's, it's tied to. So I wanted to ask you to reflect on those things in relation to your own attempt to think political acts beyond the terms of citizenship as we currently understand them. So you seem to be moving towards a language of uh, traversal acts in order to do this, but at the same time you're deploying a notion of citizens without frontiers and even invoking a kind of ideal within that term, within those terms, uh, the idea of acting simply and purely as a citizen. So, to draw on Butler's phrasing, um, I want to ask you how we can theorise being or becoming political in a way that doesn't determine the terms of being political. And the question that that I always ask in relation to these things is whether or not the language of citizenship, however nuanced it might be and however um, uh, distinguished from the legal or formal code of citizenship, uh, whether that language as a starting point for thinking outside the square locks us into something that we're trying to see beyond. Thanks, and that's uh, really a significant question, and I like the way you tied it in with uh, Judith's uh, presentation and her argument of the relationship or the need to think about um, grammar of citizenship without being bound to the nation state. And in a way, that is the task, that is the uh, project for many of us who want to see um, ways of becoming political uh, not getting attached to already instituted, already constituted uh, ways that are authorized and prescribed under certain conventions 
specifically by the nation state, even more specifically the state. Um, now, if the task is thinking about a grammar of politics, you said language of citizenship, uh, my, my starting point is actually not citizenship. My starting point is political subjectivity. How do people make themselves political by taking up positions without necessarily authorization, without necessarily under already prescribed conventions that uh, prescribe how does one become a citizen? That's why I find the term act very useful, starting with citizenship. Um, I think you're right that it, it becomes very difficult to uh, shed the tradition that comes with it, uh, precisely because it is already understood as membership. And that's what I was essentially trying to get at in my uh, lecture, that this notion of by virtue of being a member of a polity has certain authorization that goes with it. It's an investiture. It's a capacity to act. Once one is given that capacity to act, then one can act, one can practice only within the terms given to it. And the oath uh, that symbolizes such investiture um, procedures is an indication of that. That oath is then later on, of course, would be called oath of loyalty. And it is not at all surprising that in this new emphasis on citizenship of the nation, we are seeing the revival of the uh, ceremonies and oath procedures and so on, precisely to mark that symbolic space of acting under the capacity, in the capacity given by the state. So when we begin with citizenship, we get trapped in that just the way I described in the lecture, how, for example, each guild was trapped in, in a profession that if you're a shoemaker, you cannot act on the capacity of, let's say, an um, ironmonger and so on. Um, it sounds so off from what citizenship is, and yet that is exactly the same ritual, same procedure through which we get uh, that capacity. But when we shift to political subjectivity and acts through which people institute themselves as political subjects, two things open up. One of them, the repertoire that, are, uh, that is available to people to enact themselves as citizens becomes much wider. So we see, uh, for example, people acting like citizens even they don't have the capacity in this case, legal right to act uh, as citizens, or claiming rights that they don't have. So if they were to act within already prescribed um, rules, they would not be asking those rights. They would not be conducting themselves in ways that they are not authorized to do so. This is one opening. The other opening is the, uh, the one that I focused in my lecture. Up until the lecture, I think my, the focus of my work was the first one. How do people... Uh, enhance and increase the repertoires of uh, citizenship. The second part is that going beyond this membership, being invested, they go across frontiers. So they make themselves responsible toward other places where they're not members. So the repertoire expands not only symbolically and substantively, 
but also territorially. And the territorial connections that it forms no longer resembles, or at least I would like to argue, the geometric forms that we are familiar with that we draw nation states. The forms that they constitute, the shape in which they uh, build these connections of responsibility and responsabilization are not yet representable. We don't have modes of representing them. In the absence of any mode of representing them, I wanted to put this benchmark traversing frontiers just to indicate that something is happening and these traverses are not neatly uh, bound categories. Can I just Should I jump in yeah. there? Um, just I have an interesting question. I mean, first of all, thank you very much. And I think you've you kind of outlined why um, your work's been so seminal because you've given this rich vocabulary to really expand how we think about citizenship and the practices and, and who can be a citizen and, and the meaning of it. Um, as you said, in the first sort of sense that you open up the boundaries of citizenship. In the second sense, with respect to transversing frontiers, um, I had a question about that, just that... Um, in your discussion, in your inaugural lecture, you gave such a rich description of frontier, and you, you show the limitations in English of it, but then the very rich meaning in the French sense of frontier, with médecins sans frontières. And you noted, for example, that it can mean several meanings, front lines, extremities, or edges, or the limits of something, or the unknown, such as in the final frontier, and you suggested that, um, used literally, it indicates the outer borders of a settlement, or more importantly, defending or protecting them. And I was curious, given this, the lack of mention of the sort of colonial connotations that the frontier sometimes takes, um, and you were very careful to distinguish the kind of transversal politics that you have in mind as being different than a sort of um, internationalism or an international uh, volunteerism or a global cosmopolitanism, both of which have been uh, liberal concepts criticized for, um, for a will to power, really, and... Uh, uh, you know, that we see as sort of a form of neoliberal, sorry, neo-colonial forms of governance. And so I was wondering, given this and given that the inaugural lecture is part of this, mm -hmm. uh, you know, opening up the boundaries of citizenship, but within the context of citizenship after Orientalism, how you understand your concept of uh, citizens without frontiers navigating some of the kind of problematics around colonialism and neo-colonialism and, um, and really, you know, getting around the sort of orientalizing limits that we've, we've seen in modern notions of liberal citizenship. Thank you. I think that's really important um, issue as well to put on the table and and to think through because I am aware of you know um, especially taking an example of a humanitarian mm -hmm. and and aid organization and several others too. The issue here is I I want to just sort of single out with that phrase traversing frontiers as opposed to crossing borders. In crossing borders, as I indicated, they're already. Um, authorized actors, professions, travelers, uh, tourists, workers, the various unilateral, bilateral, bilateral, multilateral arrangements that uh, make these kinds of mobilities and movements possible. So we have plethora of actors who are already authorized to cross borders. Um, and then second actor is the states. St states also are authorized to cross and also not authorized. They cross borders all the time. Uh, drone war, for example, is an example of unauthorized and, and unprescribed um, uh, crossing borders. Spying operations or releasing uh, viruses into the internet to uh, eliminate or at least uh, damage facilities of another uh, state. 
So, and then on a more uh, mundane level, states also have diplomatic missions and so on. So there's a lot of crossing borders happening. And the third actor, of course, quite well-known international non-governmental organizations, they also cross borders with impunity most of the time. They are, uh, they are able to do that with, and they are protected. And most recently, of course, their protective framework is human rights. What is left uh, behind, as it were, uh, what is not really discussed is the figure that cannot do this, the figure that is confined within the limits of that term, a citizen. And if one acts across frontiers, one has to leave that citizenship behind and then do it under political disguise. So this is what I mean by, uh, because we don't have space left for being political across frontiers, um, then what we do, we, we do it under political disguise. Now, when it's under political disguise, it generates number of problems. For example, there are civil society organizations whose support and funding we don't know the sources of. Um, many other organizations, clandestine, sometimes semi-transparent, sometimes transparent, uh, distribute enormous amount of money in the world today to actually enact politics. But all of this happens with rather shady, murky, unaccountable, and non-transparent ways. The task for us now, I say, um, how do we institute transparent, legal, what Foucault was saying in 1982, uh, was it? No, 19, yeah, it was 82, that lecture, uh, uh, speech I quoted from, mm -hmm. um, the new right. Well, how do we now, the, the, the new right is imaginatively created, but now we have given, we have to give more concrete form to it. And what would that take? So the figure I'm thinking, um, who can traverse frontiers, but not in the name of already prescribed, already authorized forms of action. But this is purely and simply as being political. And I didn't say this in the lecture, but I've been thinking about an example during the occupied movements. I did a little bit of research to see to what extent there was traversing. Mm. There was some electronic traversing and some visitation, visitations between New York, London, Madrid, and, and so on. But I was just thinking, you know, if any one of those actors who wanted to participate in the Occupy movement or Occupy um, um, of another city and arriving at the border and responding to the question, why you're here, and response being, I'm here to be political, we can all imagine what the consequences are. You cannot be in another territory for reasons of political. And we have to put this as a question. Um, and doing it under professional disguise that turns into the political, although it is a um, possibility, um, it produces its own problems. Engen, can I push you a little bit um, to, to, uh, on this distinction between, say, people who can cross borders, let's say professionals within MSF or some other professional group without frontiers, uh, whose passports allow them to cross borders, uh, and people who are also engaged in what you're describing as traversal acts, but whose mobility is much more circumscribed. So, for instance, um, your, your, the ideas you were talking about made me think about the example of uh, a group of journalists 
refugees who were living in the Kikuma refugee camp in Kenya. And they uh, started up an online news bulletin called the Kikuma News Reflector, I think. Um, and they did this as a response to the limitations on information flows that were uh, placed in the camp by the UNHCR, a supposedly humanitarian organisation mm -hmm. responsible for the camp management. So by setting up this um, online news service, they not only gave other refugees in the camp information about their immediate environs, they gave them uh, information about the data that was being collected about them, that was uh, being kept from them by the humanitarian agencies. Um, they also gave them access to international news and they gave a global audience uh, the ability to know mm. what was going on inside the camp and the restrictive kind of conditions they were living under. So it seems to me that's an example of the kinds of acts that you're talking about. If, we, if I compare that then to the example of MSF professionals uh, moving across borders and acting under disguise of, of their professional capacity, I just wonder about the tensions that come from comparing from comparing those two cases, um, is it possible to separate that act that the MSF professional makes from his or her citizenship that does in fact authorise them to move and act in that capacity? And is there something fundamentally different about those two cases or something problematic about bringing them together uh, almost as if they were uh, equivalents? Um, so, so is it this idea of acting purely and simply as a citizen in, in, the, in the case of both? Perhaps you can elaborate more mm. on what, might, what the tensions and difficulties might be and whether that has implications for solidarity between those two mm. groups when their starting points uh, and the authorisations they carry are so vastly different. Mm. I think that uh, connection is really interesting and it, it troubles me um, because MSF when it acts across not only acting as professionals but also with the protection of a citizenship that already exists and if it's not there it makes it actually impossible um, um, so the issue, first, let me just quickly say something about the purely and simply mm -hmm. as a citizen. Um, on the one hand, its reference to historical tradition of theorizing uh, citizenship is deliberate, almost an invitation to think the limits of what aspiration uh, meant appearing in public space as purely and simply as a citizen. On the other hand, I wanted to resignify it. I wanted to resignify in a sense that can we now imagine we have asked the liberal subject for centuries to leave its particularities behind when it appeared in the public space. We said, if you're a woman, we don't want to know about that. If you are of another uh, identity, we don't want to know about that. We don't want to know about your sexuality. We don't know about your height. You appear here in this space purely and simply citizen. Now, twisting that a little bit, now can we imagine a, a citizen whose professional affiliation we don't want to know about, but purely, as a sim purely and simply as a citizen who has the right 
to speak and act across frontiers, to have a say and influence in the politics of the other. That's what I want to identify. But there is a problem. I think you, you didn't identify it as a problem, but there is a problem in doing this analogy between Without Frontiers movement and Citizens Without Frontiers, because Without Frontiers movements rely on already instituted citizenship, whereas uh, Without Frontiers, Citizens Without Frontiers, uh, seems to indicate double freedom, as it were, enacting a double freedom. On the one hand, the first freedom is one does not have to necessarily be an already constituted citizen to act like a citizen. And second, one does not have to confine oneself necessarily in the jurisdiction in which one is seeking rights, but the seeking rights claiming and making claims on others can cross, can cross uh, frontiers. Maybe I'm just working through this, and but your uh, question really, I think, articulates the issue here that citizenship gets articulated back into this Without Frontiers moniker. Okay. I mean, maybe I can just jump in there uh, also because that's a very interesting kind of tension. It makes me think of the example of sort of no border camps as well, where there are, uh, you know, moments of transversing the frontier to work sort of in solidarity, which kind of um, through that act can blur the boundaries of non-citizen and citizen. Uh, in terms of the, the solidarity that's expressed with non-citizen migrants, for example, in Calais, uh, who have formed in the migrant detention camps to kind of draw attention to border controls, uh, the politics of that, and, and the camp. But then the kind of limits, the moments that happen where, uh, you know, the, the people who have come from the no-border camps have citizenship, they're free to, to leave, and even um, the kind of tensions of the presence where uh, their presence being there can, can draw in, you know, more attention by the police, which ultimately affects negatively the non-citizen uh, migrants there. And even to the extent where non-citizen migrants may come to the area because they actually think that there might be mm. a moment of no borders, right? Um, so that tension where at the end there, there are these distinctions of non-citizen and citizen. Um, so, you know, just building on that, I'm thinking about the limits. And I was, and I was wondering along those lines, um, you know, again, thinking about the conference in terms of citizenship after Orientalism and opening the boundaries. Um, you know, I think one of the things that your work's been really important uh, for us and, and with being political is to try to think about how we disrupt the binaries between non-citizen and citizen. And I think that your work uh, in terms of thinking about the transversal qualities uh, and transversal spaces is very interesting in that sense. And you talk about the way that, uh, you, you talk about interventions that might create a concrete series of resonances, solidarities, or anemones, alliances, and intensities across space and time that effectively resists universalizing narratives and unifying interpretations. And so I'm wondering, just to, wanted to push you a little bit more on that, about how you see uh, this transversal quality disrupting the binary between citizen and non-citizen. Mm -hmm. It's been so at the heart of Occidental notions of citizenship, but you know, recognizing or maybe addressing this tension of the limits mm -hmm. as well. Well, thanks so much. I think those citizens without frontiers already an announcement of that disruption, you know, because I repeatedly say it's a paradox, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it disrupts that. It, if we can actually act in capacity of citizens without frontiers, that binary uh, distinction becomes very difficult to sustain. But secondly, going back to the emphasis on acts, the significance of it is, is my sense is that, and your examples actually 
elaborate and and give really a resonance to but people are all actually doing this people are um, acting in many inventive autonomous and creative ways and from the point of view of theorizing we don't have the grammar or the vocabulary to take notice of them so in a sense this is also a call to not only sort of um, an activist program to understand citizenship, but also a call to academics and those who are thinking about these issues theoretically to recognize the limits of theorizing. Limits of theorizing starting with, you know, liberal notion of citizenship, republican notions of citizenship, and the notions of um, 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 state membership and so on, but actually look at what people are doing by taking various risks to identify themselves and others as equal citizens without the capacity and the authority to do so. So my sort of call and aspiration is also for a young generation of researchers to start with these acts, look at the specificity. So the two examples you have given are great examples of, okay, we start with this. Now, when you start with acts, they don't actually appease theory. They unsettle and trouble it. And that's exactly what they should do. So theory here is not so much to explain reality, but a framework to begin to see certain things by which it can be troubled. And it's so theory is an ongoing work and collective work that we have to do with the participation of those virtual or actual participation of those who are actually um, putting their lives at risk to undertake the kinds of acts that we are talking about. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 the, it's extremely challenging and it's this constant tension between trying to um, articulate the unknown without containing it. Uh, and trying to work with the concepts, the language, the grammars we already have because they're meaningful to us and they allow us to communicate on these things but, uh, but feeling the frustration of not being able to express what's going on. And I think the spatial dimension to what you're talking about um, is crucial to the, kind, to the, um, the novelty of what, of, of what it is you're describing. And somehow I feel like the... the uh, the new way of conceptualising space beyond territorial limits, beyond scalar forms, mm -hmm. in ways that are hard to even begin to talk about, um, remind us of the, uh, the limits of the citizenship language that, that we have. Um, so uh, I, I still come back to, though, this sense that um, there's a real danger... In, in, in wrapping all of this up in the notion of citizenship, uh, a danger that's similar in some ways to the sort of grand narratives around global civil society or global democracy that, that you, you criticise as, uh, as erasing the heterogeneity, the diversity of these acts and movements and ways of being political subjectivities and solidarities. So for me, there's a real tension in acknowledging uh, the limiting nature of those kinds of narratives, but posing the idea of a pure and simple act as a citizen uh, as something that gets away from that. For me, it mm. seems to 
point towards containing it again mm. in some ways. Remarkably, the issue, the, the language of citizenship does not worry me that way. Um, I understand why it should worry, because we have this uh, 200 years at the minimum history of uh, citizenship being used as a regime of governing movement of populations, creating uh, peoplehood, creating uh, nations, and all sorts of nationalisms that are associated with it, that it is not um, surprising that it is even equated with nationality. In many languages, citizenship equals nationality. But as a political project, I've come to believe to rescue or revive uh, citizenship from nationality and change the focus on it as political subjectivity. And in each language, in many languages, uh, there are various phrases that describe political subjectivity. Citizenship may well be a benchmark on the way to make this distinction, severing it from nationality. But if we don't do the work of severing it from nationality, then what language do we begin with to understand political subjectivity? And that, to me, is, is, is a question that remains. But all the same, although I say that I'm, not, I'm less worried about you know, uh, confining political subjectivity within citizenship, when you go back and forth between political subjectivity, I think there are ways of mitigating against that, identifying that the, the real question we are dealing with, how do peop people become political, under what conditions they are authorized or not authorized to do so, and what does it mean to be political when one seeks um, uh, justice? These questions are core elements of politics here, elsewhere, and in the world we inhabit. And then citizenship is the language with which we conduct this um, investigation. And at one point, we may well decide to drop it when and such time comes where we say um, it is no longer useful because it has done its work. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's interesting because when you're talking about, um, I mean, you're always very grounded, you're always very located in specific acts, which inform then the discussion and theorizing of citizenship, and also in very specific locales. Um, and so, of course, your work's been, you know, you've done a lot of work on cities and, and cities as difference machines, and that's being productive of, of political subjectivities. And so I guess I had two kind of questions there. One was, I think one of the questions that a lot of people had at the end of the talk, uh, which was your in response to your mischievous provocation at the end, um, you know, you focused much on your of your talk on this concept of a new citizens without frontiers and a new politics that has not yet been named. Um, but then at the end of the talk, you seem to reinvoke, and I, you've sort of already touched on this this uh, notion of the universal liberal modern subject, but albeit in a sort of provocative or mm -hmm. mischievous way. And you mentioned that, as you've already said, we spent so much time criticizing this notion of uh, the universal subject, um, maybe for the overly, you know, the, the over-dependence on uh, visibility or presence in public space, and also for having to live particularities uh, behind in the, in the private sphere. And, of course, this has been criticized for being, a, you know, a universalizing of a particular body, the male, middle class, mm. uh, you know, uh, white uh, subject. And so I was just, um, I'd just like you to, 
to kind of be further, further mischievous about this, if you mm -hmm. will. And um, just to say a little bit more about, you know, at that point, are you are you invoking something? You're talking about this liberal modern subject. Uh, you kind of invoking that and playing with that. And so mm -hmm. I just wondered if you could provide mm -hmm. further thought about you suggested that might be an opening as well at the same time as we're sort of critiquing it. Yeah, I think um, the way I'm thinking about it is, is once we went through this critique of you know, the impossibility of the purity of the citizen mm -hmm. that liberal self um, asked for, um, then we also went through a self-critique of differentiated identities, uh, fragmented identities, and a identification of a uh, malaise, as it were, being unable to speak through identities, act through identities, or in other words, mm -hmm. traversing identities. We have not yet come to the point where we identify then or we designate the citizen as one who is capable of traversing, not just simply enacting oneself in search of one's own interest. I think the kind of politics that uh, has identified our times, as it were, made the focus uh, too much on, and the right actually criticized this way as well, um, too much on the subject that can only um, defend and struggle for its own interests. But what about the subject who actually want to defend others' interests, traversing other interests? So just the difficulties, I want to say, for example, we organize a panel in academic uh, conferences. Immediately, the issue arises about representation. People make assumptions about who can speak about Palestinian uh, question. Sometimes the assumption seems to be that if you don't look like a Palestinian, you don't have a right to, or at least it's not as authentic. So in a way, in this kind of politics, we have foregone the traversal qualities of citizenship. So this is the move I want to make. Traversal on the one hand with this frontiers moniker, I am speaking through space, but I'm actually speaking or want to begin to speak also symbolic space. So this purely and simply citizen does not have to be described as in liberalism, leaving all the identities behind, but someone who can speak and act across all identities and institutes herself as with a right to do so. And I think we'll leave that very interesting discussion there. Engen Eisen, Kim Rigel and McNevin, thank you very much. Thank you.